Welcome to this episode of the Rise After the Fall podcast. I'm Sunny. I don't have quite the voice for this that my husband, Sean, has. He was with me today. However, I'm taking the lead because I'm interviewing him today. How do you feel about that? Good, yeah. I mean, it's interesting to be interviewed on your own podcast. <laughs> well, I said, well, you said before the show, you're, I said, do you want a podcast? Do you want to record today? And you said, no, I don't want to just record just because, and if we don't have anything to say. And then you preached a message this morning, because this is a Sunday right now. You preached a message and I sat there and within five minutes, I thought, oh, we're podcasting today. <laughs> because you brought up something uh, that needs to be answered. And that is, where do we stand? I mean, we are the podcast hosts. So where do we stand? I don't know if people are asking this, but I think it's a question that should be answered. Where do we stand when it comes to our purpose for this whole podcast? Like, like what are we trying to do? What are we getting at, right? Are we talking about uh, the person who already fell? Are we talking about the victim of a fall? Are we, that we're, was a part of it, the families involved? Yes, all of it, right? Yeah, I was gonna say, I would say the answer to that is yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All we, of the above. All of the above. And- so with the podcast, we are all about uh, just saying you need to fall all the way. And that's been the whole thing. And this isn't like we want people to fall all the way in the biggest moral failure. We're talking to people in this podcast that aren't even leaders or pastors. And they're realizing, you know what? If I have this thing in my life that I'm allowing to be a pattern, a temptation I fall into, I need to go ahead and fall, repent, like we talk about falling all the way, which is a full guttural repentance so that we can change our ways, especially before it's going to have collateral damage with an entire family, extended family, and for pastors, an entire church. Yeah. So that's where we stand with the podcast. But what you talked about today, and so I'm gonna do a little interviewing at the end because we're gonna show the clip, but you talked about identity and we know that we're in an identity crisis in our world, but people are in an identity crisis. And I even, you pointed out, and what stuck with me is that even pastors are in an identity crisis. Yeah. And the identity crisis I'm talking about is stepping into what God's called us to do and to a confidence of our calling. But that's a hard line that once you cross into confidence, you don't step into pridefulness because many of us suffer with insecurity for most of our life. And then when we finally step in, you see pastors do this a lot, finally step into like a full confidence, then there's this tension to manage that now I can't let this turn to pride, especially as you've said in previous episodes, especially when we believe our own press. And when we hear things that tickle our ears, it makes us more prideful because with every promotion in life, we have two choices, a softened heart or a hardened heart. And so that's why we say often, you know, we need to check ourselves. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to have us play the clip and it is a good portion of your message that I just think people are going to be blown away by like I was. And we'll be right back. I grew up in a uh, spiritually diverse culture and community. Uh, I grew up in a neighborhood with Hindus, Buddhists, Taoists, Seventh-day Adventists, lots of Muslims, uh, and a handful of Christians who were missionary Baptists, uh, AME, Methodists, some form of Pentecostal. And that didn't really impact me until college. Uh, I I had the same best friend from kindergarten through the 12th grade. His sisters all called me the breakfast man because uh, every time they woke up, any day, Monday through Saturday, when they woke up, I was at their breakfast table eating their cereal because their their mom bought sugar smacks and we got crispy, you know, and so, sorry, love you, mom. And so, like, they called me the breakfast man. We spent every day together until we went to different colleges. He went to Michigan and I went to Minnesota. And when we went to college, we took different spiritual paths. He joined the Nation of Islam, changed his name and swore off pork and the blue-eyed devil, AKA the white man. I chose Christianity and I decided to follow Jesus full time. 
our spiritual choices, they divided us, and he hasn't spoken to me since. It's been almost 30 years since my decision caused that divide, and in that time, I have seen lots of spiritual trends come and go, both in the church and, and in individuals who claim to be followers of Jesus. In the church, for example, I've seen the seeker-sensitive movement where we almost dumbed the gospel down so much that it minimized it. We stopped talking about Jesus by name. We stopped having any religious artifacts in our churches. We stopped taking offerings, and we just put a little wood box in the back of our church, and we didn't want to offend anybody. We dumbed the gospel down so much that it minimized it. Now, I've also seen the Young and Reformed movement where, where you had angry, aggressive guys who who wore affliction gear and preached about predestination and how God has his elect, this, uh, this select group of people who before the beginning of time, God chose to be saved. And if you aren't part of that elect, or if you aren't one of those people who God chose to select, no matter what you do for the rest of your life, you're out of luck. And just as much as the seeker-sensitive movement took the gospel and dumbed it down to the point that it minimized it, the young and reformed movement, it took the gospel and it made it so discriminate that it marginalized it. I've seen some spiritual trends in the church. I've seen some spiritual trends in people who claim to be followers of Jesus, too. Like, I've seen the holiness movement, uh, where everything you do is wrong. <laughs> you can't play cards, can't show your hair can't wear pants if you're a girl, you can't go to the movies, you can't listen to secular music, you can't uh, smoke or chew or hang around with girls who do. It's like, like a holiness movement where literally like everything that you did was a sin. And that caused people to hide every struggle and every shortcoming. It made them act like they had everything all together. It made them act like they had everything all figured out. I've also seen the trends uh, where people wanted to be real or they wanted to be relevant, which had the opposite effect of the holiness movement, and it caused people to almost celebrate every struggle and shortcoming that they had. Spiritual trends, they come and they go. And I don't think any of them start with bad intentions, but so many of them end up being really, really destructive, individually and corporately. Uh, but there's one trend that I have seen come that just doesn't seem to be going away. And, and it's where well-intentioned people uh, say this, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And on the surface, that seems holy. On the surface, that seems humble. But at its core, at its root, it's really, really destructive. Because at its core, it's a defining statement. It's, a, it's subconsciously establishing identity. I don't know if you know this, but identity is a big issue in our culture. We are in the midst of an identity crisis. There is so much confusion. There seems to be so many choices. And those choices are rooted in however you identify. But biblically, there is no identity crisis. Biblically, there is no confusion. There's only two choices. There's only two ways for you to identify. The Bible says you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Now, it says we're all born in Adam. And so because we're all born in Adam, we inherit Adam's sinful nature. And because of that sinful nature, we have got to be reborn in Christ, in Christ. It's a central theme throughout the New Testament. It's a term that is mentioned 216 times. Now, we weren't meant to just live for Christ. We were meant to live in Christ. Now, the great apostle Paul, he told us how to do that when he told us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I, I kind of like how, the, how the, the message paraphrase says that. It says to be energetic in your life of salvation. I love that. Be energetic in your life of salvation. A lot of times people, when they get saved, it becomes a litany of things you can't do. <laughs> uh, to me, it becomes a thing of things you can do. 
You can be free. Amen. You can be peaceful. You can go to heaven. Like you can, like there's lots of stuff you can do when, when you get saved. But, but a lot of people, we feel like, like when you get saved. And some of that is because of this, um, this old school mentality in the church that tells you how much you suck. My pastor used to say, is it easier to tell a man his face is dirty or point him to the mirror? Like, if I tell you that you're wrong, you're going to tell me that I'm wrong. But if I live my life before you in a way that isn't wrong, at some point, maybe you'll aspire to live your life in that same way. It's just this idea of, I, I want people to leave this place feeling better than they felt when they got here. People, when they woke up this morning, some of you guys felt like chicken little and you felt like the sky was falling. I don't need you to know that the ceiling is lower than it was when you got here. I don't need you to leave this place and go, oh my God, oh, oh Jesus, don't come back today. That's my life. If I die in a wreck, you already think that. Yeah. I want you to leave here and think, yeah, I can't. I can live my life. And so, like, be energetic in your life of salvation. Salvation is great. Living for Jesus is great. It's freeing, and it's exciting, and it's, and it's liberating. He says, be reverent and be sensitive before God. So, so the old one says, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And when I, when I decided to follow Jesus full time, I did that. Uh, I took a deep dive into who I was. I was mean and ugly, impatient and impetuous, rude, hateful, disrespectful, disobedient, arrogant, violent, a cheat, a thief, a liar. When I decided to follow Jesus full time, I did like a real analysis of my life and I realized I was a sinner. But I didn't want to stay that way, and I realized I also didn't have to stay that way, because in Christ, I could take on a new identity. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. Listen, I am not a sinner. I sin, but that's not who I am. And the world's going to continue to try to label me that way. But if I'm in Christ, God won't. This book, the Bible, is clear on that. According to Scripture, when I made that decision to follow Jesus full time, God stopped identifying me as a sinner, and he started identifying me as a saint, which, depending on your religious background, may make you cringe. You may go, oh, God, he's a saint. Oh, God, I wouldn't pray to him. Like, I don't want his trading card. Like, it may make you cringe. It, it, it may seem borderline sacrilegious. Yet the Apostle Paul a.k.a. St. Paul the Apostle, when writing the book of Ephesians, starts that letter with these words, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Do you think those people were perfect? Do you think that they were pure? Do you think they had it all figured out? Do you think that they were all kind, gentle, loving people who only listened to worship, watched the chosen, and spoke words of encouragement over everybody that they met? <laughs> or were they normal people like you and me? And if there were cars back then, occasionally may have given people the wrong gesture and may have ridden up too close on people or may have slammed on their brakes on, not that I have a problem in traffic, who may have gotten in line and did the one leg shuffle and may have, ah, ah. like they were normal people just like you and me. I mean, he was, he was writing this letter to a church filled with people who were brand new believers. And some of those people were mean and ugly, impatient and impetuous, rude, hateful, disrespectful, disobedient, arrogant, violent, cheaters, thieves, liars. Some of them were gossips and backbiters, fornicators and adulterers. They were people who still sinned. And yet St. Paul called them saints, which brings up a couple really important questions. How does God see you and how do you see yourself? 
How does God see you? And how do you see yourself? How you answer those two questions will play a huge part in the identity you choose to live in. How you answer those two questions will play a huge part in the messages you choose to send yourself. What message are you sending yourself? Are you telling yourself, I'm a sinner? Are you telling yourself, I'm a saint? Listen, whichever of those two messages you choose to send yourself is going to go a long way in determining how you end up living your life. So for me, I choose to send myself the message that I'm a saint. And that can be controversial because there's really two approaches to establishing sainthood. Uh, You have the church's system to sainthood, uh, which is 10 intricate, difficult, extensive, expensive steps that were established by a group of men a couple hundred years ago in the 1700s. That's one way. Uh, Or you have the one that the Apostle Paul talks about throughout the New Testament that was established by God before time began, which is be in Christ. Are you in Christ? Then you're not a sinner. You're a saint. And I get it. I know you're like, for some of you, you're like, oh my God. Like for some of you, uh, your mind just exploded. Like, uh, because I know some of your first reaction, because I know some of you, some of your first reaction is, bro, bro, I can't, I can't be a saint. You don't know me, bro. You don't, you don't know what I think, how long I think it, how often I think it, or that I'm thinking it right now. Like, you don't, you don't know what I do or who I do it with, or that it's not with the person I'm supposed to be, you know, doing it. Like, you don't, you don't know, bro, you don't know me. I can't. And you're right. I don't. But he does. Which brings us back to the, to the two questions I asked you a minute ago. How does God see you? And how do you see yourself? Yeah. You may see yourself as a sinner. But if you're in Christ, regardless of your past mistakes or current regrets, God doesn't. If you're continuing to send yourself the message, I'm a sinner, you, my friend, are in the midst of an identity crisis. But your identity is not defined by your sin. It is defined by your Savior. And in this book that he had written for you, you know, this, you know, if you have one of these, he wrote this book for you. I have have these, uh, I have these uh, two little books that uh, my kids wrote in to me. They're, uh, They're like, what I love about dad. This little... I love when dad does this. I love when dad says this. When dad says this, it makes me do this. When dad has has little stick figure. Now, I gave them the book because I wanted them to write in it. That was my Christmas gift to myself from them. I said, here, here's this book and here's what I want you to do. And then my daughter didn't write it. I didn't, I didn't, uh, she, she didn't write in it right away because she really wanted to take the time to like really be, she's a lot like me, very analytical. But if I write this, what is this going to come across as? So it took her a little time. And I, I was like, oh my, oh me, she, she must not have any thoughts, you know, about me. And so every once in a while when I'm sad, I'll pull out these little books. And they're just small. And I just open it up. When dad does this, I think that. And I go, oh, God, I am a normal human. Oh, thank you, Jesus. And that's what this book is. Yes. That, that, that God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, channeled his thoughts through the hands of men. And, and, and when, he, when he had them write these words, he was thinking about you. And he was thinking about when you were going to be sad. 
And he was thinking about this Christmas season when you were going to have these moments when you felt like you just couldn't go on. And somewhere within this book, he had somebody like, like thousands of years ago, he had somebody write a sentence and that person didn't know you. They didn't know you were ever going to exist. They didn't care about you. They didn't think about you. But the one who had those words written, he was thinking about you. He was, he was praying for you. You know, the Bible says that Jesus prays for you. You know that, right? It says that he stands at the side of the father and that he prays over you every day. And so in this book that he wrote for you, he doesn't refer to people who are in Christ as sinners ever. Now, 300 times the Bible does speak about people being sinners, but in all 300 of those times, he's speaking of people who aren't in Christ, people who haven't exchanged their identity for his identity. This book says people who aren't in Christ are sinners, but, but those who are in Christ are saints always. So if you're in Christ, you aren't just a filthy, wicked, vile sinner who's been forgiven. You aren't just a sinner saved by grace. You are a new creation. And if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old things, they've passed away. Behold, all, all. Do you know what that means in the original language? All. It means every, all things have become new in Christ. You have a new identity, biography, and eternity. It is time we stop living our lives in guilt and shame. It's time we stop living like we have to make some kind of weird penance that makes some weird dude feel good about himself like he's having an impact on your life. It is not my job to make you do anything. It's, it's your job and the Holy Spirit's job. It's not my job to change your life. It's my job to connect with the Holy Spirit and let him change my life. And as he changes my life, hopefully the changes that he's made in my life will be an inspiration for you to make changes in your life. It's not your job to change your husband or to change your wife or to change your kids or to change your grandmama. It is your job to let the Holy Spirit work in and through you and change you. And as the Holy Spirit works in and through you and changes you... It changes your environment, and that environment impacts the people around you. It is time we stop living our lives in condemnation, because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. He sent him into this world. Why? So that it would be saved. Saved from what? From guilt and shame. Saved from condemnation. God isn't looking to condemn you. Convict you? Oh yeah. But condemn you? No, not never. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is from God. Condemnation is from the enemy. Conviction leads to life. Condemnation leads to despair. Conviction ends in joy. Condemnation ends in sorrow. Conviction makes us want to change. Condemnation makes us want to quit. Conviction looks to Jesus. Condemnation looks to yourself. Conviction is a blessing. Condemnation is a burden. Conviction leads to a new identity in Christ. Condemnation leads to an old identity in sin. How do you identify as a sinner or as a saint? And we have to answer that question today because because your identity will always determine your activity. If you continue to send yourself the message, I'm a sinner, when you're tempted to sin, you're automatically going to determine, well, I'm a sinner, so I guess I'll sin. But when you start sending yourself the message, I'm a saint, I'm in Christ, you're going to feel that, that, that uh, temptation to sin, and you're going to go, ah. I better not do that because that's not who I am. That may be what I want to do. That, 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 that may be uh, where I lean. That may be the temptation in my life. But I'm not, I'm not going to do that because cause why? Because I'm not a sinner. And so because I'm not a sinner, I'm not going to live my life in the sin that I want to live in. And when you start to live your life telling yourself, I'm a saint, I'm in Christ, you'll start resisting that sin. You're, you're going to still want to sin. Don't play no games. You're still going to want to sin. You know why? Because sin 
Oh boy, it feels good. Oh, it feels so good. Sin feels good. Sin feels so good. That's why it's tempting. Okay, we're back. And that was incredible. I got to hear it twice. But one of the things that stood out to me is you said temptation is always rooted in identity. Unpack that. I know you did in the message, but unpack that for our type of listeners. Yeah, well, I don't think that you're tempted in areas that you don't identify as. I think I don't want to run the risk of sounding controversial, but I mean, there's a lot of people that say that they identify in a certain way. And so for me, you know, I just, I spent six months talking about the Apostle Paul. And anytime you spend time really studying someone and surveying them and trying to put yourself in their position, I really felt like I tried to do that because, and I know a lot of the people who are listening to this, they've, they didn't see or hear what we did during the pandemic, but I started out, I was going to do a series on the book of Romans. I've been trying to do a series on the book of Romans for like five years. And it just, I can't, it was a lot. I just can't get to it. Like it's, I mean, first of all, it'd take you six months to do every week to get to Romans. I mean, Romans is the most robust, in my opinion, book in the scriptures and everything is included in that book. And, and so it's kind of like Paul's Magna Carta. And so in doing this series on the book of Romans, which we called the book of Romans, I really felt like the Holy Spirit said, I want you to get to the who, what, when, where, why. And so when I got to the who, it was about the apostle Paul. And so I kind of spent, I mean, several weeks, a couple of months just talking about Paul. And so then I think when you put yourself you try to put yourself in someone's shoes, you kind of identify with them. And one of the things that's interesting is, uh, I mean, Paul, uh, you know, I, I mean, he did a long series on Ephesians as well. He did a long series on Philippians. And, and Paul starts the book of Ephesians, and I talked about this in the message, that to the saints who are in Ephesus, he also starts Philippians the same way, and he also starts Colossians the same way. And so something in that made me, as I was studying Paul, made me understand that Paul doesn't look at people who are on a spiritual journey as sinners. And so I don't want to identify as a sinner. Like it's that line that I said in the message, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And I know a lot of people who say that and I understand what they're trying to say, but I'm not gonna do that. I don't wanna live in that identity anymore because if I'm tempted to sin, and again, I mean, I said all this in the message, but the heart of it is if I'm tempted to sin and we are all tempted to sin at all times, Mm -hmm. there's always a barrage against us. And the further you go, in your Jesus journey, the more you're going to be tempted, the more you're going to be attacked, the more you're taking ground for the Lord, the more the enemy is going to try to take something from you. And so if I walk through life and I say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, I don't want to do that. I, I want to look at myself like Paul looked at these other people. And I, I think that Paul was speaking life over them. You need to change the Mm -hmm. way that you identify yourself. Mm -hmm. Because here's the thing. If I have a temptation to do something, it'll be easy for me to give in to temptation if I view myself as just a sinner. But if I view myself as a saint, as somebody who's been sanctified, set apart, then yes, I will be tempted to do that. But I also will go, yeah, but that's not who I am. Well, your example was... If I get a message on Facebook from a woman, I'm not going, and then I, I could reply. Yeah. I'm a saint and a saint doesn't respond. Yeah, so when I get a message on social, I try to always be mindful to screenshot it and send it to you or to forward it to you and to not respond before I do that. Because here's the thing, we're, we're human. Like, okay, if some incredibly handsome man sends you a message on social, then you're, there's going to be a temptation for you to go, oh, this dude is hot. And if I tell myself, I'm, yeah, I'm a pastor, but you know what? I'm relevant. I'm real. I love that you went there. Yeah. Like the trend of, 
I'm so real and cool and like, I'm just like all of you. I'm nothing special. That sounds really good, right? Yeah, there is a lot of people that say that same thing too. And I have said that in I the past. I have too. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. I, I, I wouldn't say, oh, that I'm special, but I would say that I'm set apart. Yes. And God has called me. And it's interesting because you talked about during prayer, which we didn't get in the clip, but during our prayer time today, you talked about how you were a creeper and you sp- spied on my prayer journal, which I thought I was- I read your diary, but it's was, to the Lord. I was like, oh my God, that's so, I hope I didn't say anything <laughs> ugly. But oh, it's this, this is a, don't lose your train of thought, but I had someone sitting next to me when I sat down from saying that. And she said, you know, I thought probably not a bad idea. She's married, probably <laughs> thinking about her husband. Yeah. We've talked about why do you have to hide your yeah. text messages? Why do you have to delete them? Why do you have to have passwords? I know because I know you in this 13 years of being married to this Sean after Journey to Wholeness, I knew I wasn't going to find anything. I literally wasn't afraid. I just thought, what nice things does he say about me? (laughs) But if you were worried, you wouldn't have that journal sitting on the arm of the chair. I don't have anything to be worried about. So anyway, back to your point. Yeah, my point is that like uh, over the last number of months, one thing that I've been very consciously realizing or recognizing is that God has always had his hand on me my whole life. I've had, even before I was a believer, I had favor on my life. And so why would I want to identify as somebody who doesn't have that? That's so so ungrateful. Like what God has done so much for me and is doing and will continue to do Mm -hmm. so much for me. And so for me to live my life like this, that's flippant. That's like, why? Why would I... Why would I take for granted anything? Here's the thing. If I take for granted the things that God has done, or if I take for granted the things that God is doing, then I will, I will eliminate the things that he's going to do. And so I don't want to eliminate any blessings in my life by acting common. Mm. Like there's things that I do that I don't think are sinful, right? But I'm not going to do anything. I don't want to do anything that could be construed as sinful because I have been set apart. Yeah. I have been called. And that and it's not because I've been called to be a pastor or I've been called to be a preacher. I've been called to be set apart as a son of God. Mm. And so the very same thing that Jesus used to defeat temptation is the very same thing that I can use, the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of Scripture. And if I don't function my life under the authority of Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit, then I'm not going to be able to fight temptation. So I have to view myself as a person that that is, that that is not just my responsibility, it's my privilege. Mm-hmm. I have the great privilege, like, like uh, as I contemplate my gratitude, I, I oftentimes will write in my prayer journal, thank you for access to you. I have access, me individually. I have been granted access to a subset of people that lots of people would like access to. So as as a person who serves within a professional sports team, I have access to people who lots of people wish that they had access to. I don't take that lightly. Mm-hmm. I don't take it for granted that the very people who, as we record this right now, tomorrow night will go out on a field and 87,000 people will cheer for them that morning I will be in a room with them communicating what the Lord asks me to say to them. I don't take that lightly. I have been granted access. I have a key card that gives me access to particular areas within the stadium. I don't take that for granted. And I also don't go places that I shouldn't be just because I have access to mm. it. I My key card opens, as far as I know, every door in Lambeau Field. I could go anywhere that I want in there, but just because I've been granted access doesn't mean that I should be in that place. Mm -hmm. Do you think if I, I don't know that I have access to the executive offices, but let's say I used my key card and one of the executives walked in and I was sitting at his desk. Just because I have access to that office doesn't mean I should be Mm -hmm. in that office. And so God has, through the power and the beauty of his free will, given a lot of us access to a lot of things that aren't places we should be. Mm. And we have to be responsible and mature enough to go, I'm not, I shouldn't be in there. Why? Because that's not where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. Well, and this is a great segue to what I said before the clip, which was 
this is the line that we can cross over. You can go from being like, I am a sinner who, how do I deserve to even be in the ministry? And look where the neighborhood I came from. And you talk a lot about that. You have to tell yourself, I am set apart. God chose me because you would tend to be like, I don't deserve this. Look where I came from. Look what I've done. I wasn't saved growing up. But then you cross that line where you're given access, the key card, the calling. And when you cross that line, pastor, leader of confidence, you are the CEO now. You do have access and the women could be brought right in to the city you're going to, to speak or to do a business meeting. And the access and the privacy is available. This is when we cross the line from confidence into pride and there are some people that have crossed that line and they feel as though they would say not only, and I'm now talking to the other extreme of this, what about the people who they would say, oh, I don't struggle with, I'm a sinner. Like for sure, I'm saying I'm a pastor, I'm a leader, like I run the show, right? So now I'm in the point of my life where I don't struggle with confidence. And we have, like you said, you have access, maybe they have access to people celebrity they never had to other people that will help them get off with the things they're getting off with. And you talked about conviction versus versus condemnation yeah. that we played. Yeah. Where when we're in a bad place is when we are so against condemnation, we don't have people in our life that will ever give us words that could convict us. Uh, I mean David when he committed adultery, Nathan came to him and rebuked him. But what if David would have said, listen, Nathan, who do you think you are? Yeah. Don't you can don't try to condemn me. And Nathan was coming with a word of conviction, a word of warning. And yeah. we've talked about that a lot well, on the show. There's a famous story that I heard about a particular very well-known pastor in the 80s. And he ended up having a huge scandal. And if I said that person's name, everybody would go, oh yeah, I remember that. Anyway, there was this huge, uh, well-known pastor in the 80s. And uh, there was a, a very well-known prophet in the 80s that the Holy Spirit told that very prophetic guy. He also was a pastor. He just was very prophetic. And the Holy Spirit told that prophetic pastor that he needed to go to that other pastor and confront him. And so that prophetic pastor flew to this other pastor's city. And and when he came into his office, he he crawled into his office on his hands and knees Mm. in in this humility to say, I'm not trying to say that I'm better than you. And he did. He said, the Holy Spirit told me that you're doing this, 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 this. And he, he read him, you know, basically it came out later that the that he that the Holy Spirit told this prophetic pastor exactly what that guy was doing. And the the pastor who ended up having a scandal had him removed from the building. But here's the thing, he could have at that time, it's to your point that that's when we say fall all the way, it's this Davidic repentance that David later would lay prostrate before the Lord and would say, create in me a clean heart. Mm -hmm. Cast me not away from thy holy presence, O God. The problem is there's a fine line between humility and hubris. There that people would go, well, God can't use me because I'm from here. But then there was a time in my ministry where I used that as if that was my calling card. Well, I'm from blah, blah, blah. And it was like, I remember there was a time in the 90s, early 2000s, where it was almost like a competition about who had a worst past. And to the point where dudes are making stuff up. Mm-hmm. They were lying about stuff. Cancer, and, everything. Yeah. So yeah. you just go, there's a fine line between mm-hmm. going, well, I'm not worthy to be used and you can't tell me nothing. Mm-hmm. And so I I mean, yes, I don't want to look at myself and say, well, I'm just a sinner. And I don't also want to just look at myself and say, I'm just a saint because I'm not perfect. But saints aren't perfect. Yeah, That's the thing. I mean, you look whatever whatever community you come out of faith-wise, there's certain sets of uh, faith communities that they they very highly regard particular humans and to the point where they become deified. 
And obviously that deification must have have happened posthumously because in the, and I know that this sounds so sacrilegious. I promised mother Teresa sinned. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Billy Graham sinned. Yeah. Everybody's like it, trying to be Billy Graham. Yeah, like I just go and it's, and here's the thing, but it's this idea and not to get into a big theological discussion, but it is this beautiful idea of progressive sanctification where I'm not, I, I'm so I'm still tempted by things, but by the grace of God, I'm not tempted to do the same things that I was tempted to do 10 years ago. So 10 years from now, I, the sanctification of my life should have progressed to a point where I'm not tempted to do the things that I'm tempted to do today. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it takes this spiritual maturity to admit too, like some guys would say, well, I'm not tempted by, or one of the things that was popular when we were in Bible college was, well, I'm not convicted by. Mm-hmm. And I had a professor say to me one time, well, if you're not convicted by that, you need to check your convictions, pal, mm-hmm. because that's biblical. Mm-hmm. So there are things that are sinful and things that are slippery. Mm-hmm. I want to avoid them both, right? Mm-hmm. So there'll be people that say, well, I'm not tempted. I'm not, I'm not convicted by that. But it's a, it's, it's a gateway thing where you go, well, you better be careful with that because that thing left unchecked turns into this thing. Yes. Right? Like if you, if you have a sliver and that sliver never gets dug out and it hurts to dig a sliver out, it's the worst. But if you don't dig that sliver out and it's the wrong kind of material, then that sliver will, fe- like it, it won't fester itself out. Like I've, I've gotten a metal shaving sliver in my finger before it doesn't fester out. It's too heavy. So a wood sliver, most of the time will fester itself out. Your body will push it out. But I've had slivers of metal inside my finger that they would not come out. So you had to dig them out. You had glass in your foot. It was never going to fester itself out. So the problem is if I leave that sliver inside of me for long enough, that's going to, it's going to infect it. And if it gets infected, then it becomes a real problem. So I've got things in my life that are slivers that some of them are going to fester themselves out, but there are others that aren't going to fester themselves out. And so I have to be surrounded by people, i.e. the lead team of the Exchange Collaborative, men and women, pastors, some of them, business people, some of them, you know, Pastor Lonnie Keene. He's a guy that last time he was here, I felt like the Lord said, that guy is 10 years older than you. You need to lean into that Mm -hmm. relationship. Mm -hmm. You need to have him speak things over your life and let the Holy Spirit work through him. But then we have like Pastor Dean DeGuara. He's not that much older than me, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have the authority to speak in my life either. Mm -hmm. So I need people in my life who are gonna look at me and say, yeah, you're not a sinner, but you do still sin. And so that thing that you have in your life that you think isn't a problem can become a problem by letting those people have access to me. And so that's part of what, you know, the collaborative is like, yes, okay. You said like, who is it that we target? Anybody who needs to be restored, but I would far rather be proactive than reactive. So my, I would love for the collaborative to be a thing where we don't have to do any restoration. I would love it if we- Prevention. Can, can, yeah, cut them off at the pass. But we know history tells us that, that not every case is going to be like that. But it takes real humility to be somebody who says, I'm not a sinner. I'm not going to identify like that. But I do have sin in my life. And so if I have a temptation, for example- Full disclosure, and I've told you this in the past. There was a a couple years ago, there was a lady in our church who she made me feel uncomfortable. And just when she was around me, she had had what they'd say, hungry eyes. And I went to our friend, Barry Edgman, who's on staff here. I said, brother, I need you to watch that person and I need you to keep them away from me. And I I need you to... Anytime they come up to me, come and get me. Now, was it because I was tempted by them? Not at the moment, but I knew they had hungry eyes and it's real easy when, when it's really easy to have that become intoxicating. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't attracted to them, but familiarity really, 
it can breed something like mm-hmm. that. And so like if people are listening to this and they if they don't feel like they have somebody in their life that they could be proactive with, then it's really easy for you to fall because you're looking at yourself and going, well, I mean, I can give into that. Mm-hmm. Like I talked about with the chocolate cake, it was, I, and here's the thing, I didn't feel good after it. And when we got in the car, you said to me, you know, I've never felt good after I ate dessert. Mm-hmm. I never felt good physically and I never felt good emotionally. You I said f- that to me, I think. Oh, I said that yeah. to you. It was a great line then. Yeah, but it's always good in the moment. Like you said, sin feels really good. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, back to one of your lines, temptation is always rooted in identity. How do you fight that then? Well, you change your identity, how God sees you, how you see yourself. And my identity now is confident in that I love life and I'm a goofy, critter-loving goofball. My identity 20 years ago was I got married young and I better work hard at this marriage and I better keep you in line and be your Holy Spirit and your conviction. So then my temptations look different back then than they look now. Now, like how are you tempted as a goofball? It's, it's a way easier life to live than when I was a crabby, mean wife and I was tempted to just go off on you again. So I loved that because our temptation being rooted in identity is why it's important that we work on our identity. And we are a broken record on the Rise After the Fall podcast to say, this is why we don't just come with a problem. We're not here to deconstruct churches, pastors, point fingers at people that fell or that they might fall and it, they're showing the signs. It's that we're saying, Get the help before you fall. Get the help for all the people around you if you already fell, including yourself. Because if we can change our identity, which means we have to fix some things that we didn't let conviction stop us at. We have to fix because maybe our identity, our reputation, in fact, is awful at this point. Well, there's still hope. I mean, there's hope that if, like you said, Paul would call them saints. And then he'd, he'd go on to write these long books of the Bible where they sounded like real screw-ups. Yeah, he put people on blast. But man. he spoke life. Yep. And so what is back to our very first line as we wrap this up, where do we stand on having this podcast? That there is an answer, there is a solution. Get people around you, reach out to us, let us help Don't get to a point of a fall so that you have to rise and climb out of it. It's much harder. Get the sliver out now, address the thing, have people around you and be willing to admit that there are some issues that you may have still. That's all we're asking. Yeah, and if you have given in to that temptation and have partaken in the forbidden fruit or uh, have gone through a fall, then we're here for you too because we want you to know that there is a rise after the fall. Hi, friends. It's Sunny again. And I just want to say, Sean and I appreciate your faithful listening. And we hear all the time that many of you are sharing this. In fact, we've had a few people say, I tell everybody I know, specifically other pastors and leaders about this podcast. And so we may have shared in our early season two episode about the story of getting a retreat center that we're now going to call the reserve, Uh, 20 acres, multiple houses, and the ability to house pastors and leaders, their families. We're going to basically say we're hosting the hurting. We're hosting the betrayed. We're restoring the betrayer. Uh, and so now we have a campus to do that on, a 20-acre a property to do that on, as well as we'll continue to bring people into Green Bay and we provide um, help in the finances for that and the housing for that at times as needed. Also, we'll continue to go to people. We've done that over the last couple of years, flown directly to couples in crisis. That's been an ongoing thing that Sean and I, Pastor Becky, Pastor Barry have done. But what I wanted to ask you is that um, because this retreat center is $1.8 million, which actually for 20 acres, a massive house, other housing, uh, it's really reasonable. We just happened to find it in a great location. And the person who's selling it to us has a ministry heart. He's on the board of the church that we interned at 
coming right out of Bible college. It's just crazy, the God story. But we need to get $600,000 as the down payment. Now he's going to spread that over the first year. So it's 54,000 a month. Then after that, the 1.2 million that we will finance with him, those payments will start and that's in the 70 some hundred dollars. So $7,000 a month plus utilities and expenses, but that's much more palpable than 54,000 a month. But for this first year, we're grateful that we didn't have to come up with 600,000 to even begin work on the property. We already own it. We're already doing construction. But what I would ask you is if you would consider, and you may say, it's me. I have, you know, $100,000 put away for our church that we are going to start construction on something. Or you may say, I have $1.8 million at the church I lead and we were breaking ground, but I feel, <laughs> this is the crazy thing. I've heard some crazy stories about pastors who after having the money or praying for the money and they get it for something God's having them do, God told them to give it away. But then God exceeded their expectation and they came back and had eightfold, ninefold. I know of a church in Texas, this just happened. Uh, They gave a million dollars they had raised to break ground on a new property. And someone had had been at this conference with them and they had a roof that had caved in and it was a million dollars to repair it. And God told him, give the million dollars. Well, he did. And within a few weeks, they had a company come to them and offer them money for the land and to give them land they owned. And they basically were given about $8 million from their million dollars they gave away. So I just know that when Sean and I even have given $1,200, which was our first big gift when we were first married at a conference and God told us give everything. And we had $1,201 in our bank account, which was a ton for us. It was like our savings. We gave it, we got home and we had a check in our mailbox for $1,250. Now we made $49 on that, but it increased our faith. We made a lot of return on our faith and that investment and knowing God will never ask us to give that he doesn't have a huge plan. So I take this time to say, you might be the one that says, we're gonna give you 1.8. You'll never have to worry about money as you do this ministry. You might say, we're gonna give you 600,000 for the down payment so that you don't have to stress for the first year at 54,000 a pop as you build it out. Or you might say, we're gonna give monthly or we have something else in mind. Thank you for considering it. Thank you for stepping out in faith and thank you for being a faithful listener to this. We appreciate you.